I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Evan Kleiman. Evan... <laughs> how, how many Facebook friends are you up to? Well, nothing compared to Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hiker. Evan Kleiman... on Facebook. <laughs> oh, tw- your, twi- your Twitter feed. Evan Kleiman is the owner and executive chef of one of LA's favorite restaurants, Angelique Cafe. <laughs> She is the best-selling author of numerous cookbooks, including Pasta Fresca and Cucina del Mare, which received a rave review in the February 1995 Gourmet magazine. (laughs) Evan is also host of the hit KCRW program, Good Food. Please welcome Evan Kleiman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, This is sort of like a wonderful homey reunion of sorts. A bunch of people who know each other fairly well, I'd say, especially those two at the end. (laughs) An opportunity to have a conversation about things that you maybe didn't hear discussed um, about the demise of gourmet. I I really just want to focus on the life of gourmet and um, hear a lot of great stories that we never heard before because we have three wonderful articulate people here to tell us a lot of great stories. So I'm going to start at the end with Lori, Lori Ochoa. Right now is co-editor of the Los Angeles Literary Narrative Journalism Quarterly, Slake, which is going to debut this spring. From 2001 till this summer, she was editor-in-chief of the LA Weekly, which under her tenure consistently won more national journalism awards than any other alternative newspaper in the U.S., Of course, there was that Pulitzer. (laughs) She was the executive editor of Gourmet Magazine and spent 10 years as a reporter and editor at the Los Angeles Times, including, of course, the five years that she was editor of the food section. During the time, she opened up the paper's coverage to better reflect the cultural and demographic shifts occurring in the city. And I have to say, during her tenure in the, at the Weekly, she really took a print-only publication and turned it into a 24-7, really interesting web presence. Now, her husband, Jonathan Gold... <laughs> Is, is, of course, LA Weekly's restaurant critic and the author of millions of counterintelligence segments, as well as the book, Counterintelligence, Where to Eat in the Real Los Angeles, which we're all waiting for a sequel. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, he actually started out writing about music for the LA Weekly, and um, when he was given free reign to start checking out little places that serve different kinds of food that weren't getting covered. He started out um, writing about music for the LA Weekly and was given the opportunity to check out some neighborhood places that weren't getting coverage in the city, which of course became all of those counterintelligence columns, and I hope he found his heart doing that. Of course, he, um, he's, he was the restaurant critic for California way back in the day the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Magazine, and, of course, Gourmet. In 2007, he won the Pulitzer for his criticism, the first food critic to do so. He also writes about music and popular culture for Spin, Rolling Stone, Details, and Vanity Fair, and he contributes to a radio show called Good Food and This American Life. (laughs) 
And then we have Ruth, Ruth Reichel, um, who I have to, please. I don't know of too many editor-in-chiefs, editors who have become such a face of, of, of the publication. Ruth herself is almost like the brand of Gourmet, I think. She was editor of Gourmet Magazine from 1999 to 2009, and before that, she, of course, was the restaurant critic of the New York Times, and before that, the Los Angeles Times, where she was also named food editor. Way back in the day, she was chef and co-owner of the Swallow Restaurant, from 1974 to 77. This was in Berkeley where she played a part in the culinary revolution that took place there. She's also the author of several critically acclaimed memoirs such as Tender at the Bone, Comfort Me with Apples, and Garlic and Sapphires, soon to become a major motion picture. We hope. (laughs) Her latest book is Not Becoming My Mother and the Other Things She Taught Me Along the Way. And, of course, that huge last big book of Gourmet, The Thousand Recipes, Gourmet Today. So, now that we have introduced ourselves, I asked Ruth down in, in, in the green room if she had Jonathan and Lori with her when she first went to New York. And my response was that when they asked me at Condé Nast, to be the editor of Gourmet, I said I would do it if Laurie and Jonathan would come with me. Um, and they were, part, from day one, part of the deal, because I thought it would just be so much fun. To, I, mean, I thought you know, doing it by myself would be kind of dreary, but doing it with them would be really fun. We had already done um, the LA Times food section way years earlier, and it had been the most fun that I had ever had, was um, we got the food section, what, uh, like on a Monday, and that week we completely just pulled it apart and created a new section. And I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but you were saying downstairs that what we tried to do at Gourmet was basically the same thing. Right. Why don't you give us a snapshot of what Gourmet was like when you first came? Well, when they asked me to to go through and critique it, um, it was so, I mean, here we were in this this vibrant time of food. There was so much happening, and here was this publication which had been for, at that point, 60 years in the forefront of American food and sort of leading the way, and it had become this very polite Old fa- I mean, I thought of it as a publication that was published for about a thousand very wealthy people who used it to give to their travel agents and say, you know, um, these are the trips that I wanted to take. And the recipes were terrific, but you didn't have any sense of it. It was just, it, it had no, there was no fun. There was no sense of this food revolution that we had been through, I in particular felt like it was time to infuse politics and sociology and environmentalism, all of which were just sort of beginning to poke their heads into the American food conscience. So I, you know, it seemed like this great opportunity to take a group of people who were really sad. I mean, it wasn't like 
the readership wasn't satisfied with the magazine. They were. And I kept thinking, but they don't know how great it could be. <laughs> and when you started making changes, was it immediately dramatic? For example, what was your first cover? Lori, do you remember the first cover? Right, we thought a lot about the first cover. And uh, we wanted to introduce elements of you know, farmer's markets, and we wanted to put you know, a person on the cover. And so the first cover was almost... Because there had never been a person on the cover? There had been people on some of the covers, but it was mostly just food that was made. And, um, uh, but it was sort of a, it was almost a, a young version of Ruth, really, you know, of a woman opening her hands to the reader and inviting them in, and I think holding berries or something. Mm -hmm. Well, like you know that. what it was, was I have this favorite picture of, of W. Eugene Smith that I've been, I tore out of a magazine when I was, I don't know, 15 or something, and have been carrying around with me ever since. And it's a woman, a French peasant woman, holding out a handful of chanterelles. And she just, I mean, to me, it's always been what food is. She has this beautiful smile on her face, and it's, here, this is for you, I want to feed you. And it was just exactly what I thought food should generate, that generosity, that here I found these and this is for you. And so the art director tried a million different things and finally I just gave her this picture and I said, do this. Unfortunately, what she did was um, not what I wanted, but it was like, I couldn't get her to, I mean, she got a model and she has a pretty young model and, and she's holding out berries and you don't get that sense of the sort of wonder of food and the, and the generous act of cooking. At the same it. time, it was a very different cover for Gourmet, but we also were very conscious of trying to do things like we talked a lot about the gourmet logo and the, we loved the you know swooping g and and we want we we talked well should we change the the typeface and we said and we said no we want to keep that connection to the past because we really wanted also to highlight the best of what made gourmet great in the in in the past and one of those things was the logo so we were, were having a very different looking cover but at the same time making sure to keep, hang on to the best of the past I mean, for me, the covers were always, and I'm sure everybody here probably has an experience of when you first connected to Gourmet, that the cover, like, brought you in. I mean, to me, as a kid, it was, like, really the first inkling of that there were worlds about which I knew nothing. And somehow that was just communicated by these very strange still-life covers that were, I, I truly had never seen any part of that cover. And... Um, and then as you go through the decades, we were talking downstairs about how there was a period of time where there was no food on the cover, <laughs> there was lumber, <laughs> and a, a lot of, of, of textural issues. So it's interesting. I mean, to me, I think the first cover that I really went, oh my goodness, this is truly different, was the cotton candy. The cotton candy in the sky with the Ferris wheel. Okay, now the, the, the problem with the cotton candy, which was, it's still one of my favorite co covers, and there was a major problem with that, which was, it would have been a great cover for 
June, July, or August, but we ran it in February. <laughs> it's one of those things you learn that, you know, um, you know this outdoor blue sky, cotton candy, Ferris wheel, it, it's not what people want to see when the snow is coming down. <laughs> Was there a sense of... Um any sense of intimidation or that there, there were certain things that were not to be tinkered with? No, I mean, the, um, they basically said to me, do anything you want. And um, we were really fortunate in that when we went in, there was this, the staff there was amazing. I mean, it was just, I mean, most of them were still there when we closed uh, a few months ago. I mean, it was this group of smart, passionate, wonderful people who, you know, when we said, what should we do? What do you want to do? They really, I mean, we got to do this very much as a group with them. And they were the ones really pushing, you know, let's, you know, let's do a produce issue. Let's go out and do a whole issue about farmers. Let's, um, let's, you know, go to really exciting places that, you know, let, when we go to Thailand, let's, you know, go out into the country in Thailand instead of, I mean, what Gourmet was doing in the 80s and early 90s is if they went to Thailand, they stayed in the Oriental Hotel and did an, an article about the cooking school in the Oriental Hotel. And, you know, the staff was going, you know, listen, there are these great things. And so it was very much a... Um, Opening. A, an opening, and um, the people at Condé Nast just basically said, you know, do what you want so long as you don't alienate the older readers. One of the things that, always, the thing that most amazed me when I walked into the building and I got to know everybody was just how phenomenal the test kitchen was. And we, we'd had a decent test kitchen at the times, but I mean, this was like the Ferrari of test kitchens. <laughs> I mean, there were actual several little kitchens, right? Mm -hmm. And it was regimented almost like an army. I mean, you, I mean, everybody, nobody probably thought about it that way, but everybody knew who was number one, number two, number three, number four. And things just went down the line, the line of command and people actually had the luxury to work on a single recipe for a week until it was right. And some of the, some of the funnest things was watching, uh, you know, Lori and Ruth walk down to the kitchen and like somebody would be very nervous and hold out a, uh, a spoonful <laughs> of something and, and Ruth would... <laughs> <laughs> and she'd shrug and go back to the stove. <laughs> There'd be incredible discussions and debates mm -hmm. about these recipes, and, and all the cooks participated, and, and they'd come up with great ideas. They fed off each other, and but they each had a, a, a galley kitchen that was like you always tell you it was you know better than some New York apartments and, and, and most New York apartments. most New York apartments, <laughs> and uh, it, that was their world, and it was it was so much fun to eat and talk with him. Did, I, it, it, did any stories ever percolate up from the test kitchen to editorial? Oh, yeah. Oh, all the time. Give us an example. Um, well, they were always wanting to learn. They would bring people in to teach them new things. They never, you know, what I loved about them is that they never assumed that they knew everything already. It wasn't, it wasn't, 
you're elitist in any way. They were always hungry for 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 more, and um, so there, you know, there would be things about chocolate or new new ingredients. And we started a whole section for them called Kitchen Notebook, where they could kind of show off or, or share with the readers the things that they were excited about and learning. And that kind of enthusiasm just was all over the page. And it was also at a time when the sourcing of very specific ingredients and sort of the, the explosion of small, really well-made products in sort of every area was, was happening simultaneously. Yeah, it was sort of amazing to go with them, in, to go with a group of them into a restaurant. I think I first met them, you know, a few years before we, we got there, uh, four or five people in the kitchen, because they, they take these trips every year. But they would go into a restaurant, you'd be with them, and you'd get this feeling of a group of locusts that were de devouring not just the food, but like stripping all the information to be gleaned from the cuisine, from the waiters, from the chefs, from everything. So you, you felt that when they left the restaurant, there was nothing <laughs> that the chef knew that they hadn't figured out. And, and actually, one, one of the amazing things is when Cy Newhouse bought Gourmet, uh, from Earl McCausland, who started it in the penthouse at the plaza. Um, you know, Cy asked, you know, well, do you, do you guys travel, do the cooks travel? And um, Zana, who was then the head of the test kitchen, said, no, there's not a budget for that. And he said, well, there, there must be. And so they built into the budget per Cy that every one of the test cooks would take a trip every year to anywhere they wanted to, you know. <laughs> Why go, did I hear about go, that <laughs> <laughs> go to cooking classes somewhere in the world. And they all got these expense accounts to go out to restaurants. I mean, that is gone forever in America, that kind of luxury. Wow. But they brought it back, and they also had these extraordinary stories. You know, they'd all, you know, Jacques Pepin had spent time in the kitchen teaching them things, and, you know, they remembered, you know, James Beard being in. I mean, they, they, I mean there was this, it was this real history of... That's a memoir. The, um, Waiting to be written. Yeah, well, actually, Caroline Bates, you know, she started at Gourmet in the 50s as a, she was a Juilliard student, and... She was at that time known as the Pinko at the Plaza. <laughs> um, but um, she started as a receptionist, and one of the things that I had been begging her to do was write a memoir because she really did have all, does have, you know, all of this history of gourmet in the back of her head. And um, one of the things I'm saddest about not having the December issue was we had this wonderful piece that was a reminiscence of hers. Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious to know, you went from um, writing uh, in a venue where you had to really limit your words to, to a magazine where you could really um, sort of take flight and have much more space. What was that like for you? Well, it, it sounds pretentious, but we talked about it, and I kind of wanted to try, at least to do for restaurant writing, what Pauline Kale had done for movie writing, which is to take something that had been pretty purely a 
consumer column, though sometimes it had been a very, very well done one, and be able to sort of, you know, explode it, to be able to not just write about, you know, the specific dishes, but, you know, not just that a restaurant was good, but why it was good and how it was good and how different things interacted with each other and how the customers interacted with the restaurant and the luxury that Gourmet provided of being able to go to places eight or nine or ten times before I was able to write the review, to have the space to write long. They started out at 3,000 words. They, they got shorter, rather more quickly than I would have liked. <clears throat> to, to, to really to be able to get under the hood of a restaurant before writing a review was, was a, a wonderful thing. Um, I mean, where I am now, I can go to a restaurant eight times, but that's because it costs $12 for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> was there a moment when you were writing one of, one of your first... Um, first reviews where you just felt like a cat, like just luxuriating, like, man, this is just the best, where it all came together for you, the place that you were reviewing and the act of actually getting to write in that manner? Maybe. I, I remember a review I did of um, Alain de Casas restaurant that was the most expensive restaurant to have opened in New York to that point. I mean, he was... You know, he famously had three-star restaurants in both uh, Monaco and Paris, and he was expecting his restaurant in New York to be a three-star restaurant exactly in that mold. It was exactly as expensive as the Paris restaurant, I mean, almost to the dollar. I mean, you think menus had, items had prices like uh, 67.25, and you realize it was because somebody was translating the francs. <laughs> <laughs> And because New York is a city where if you come in with a reputation, they have to cut you down to size. Um, you know, Frank Gehry comes to town and it's like, oh, you think you could design buildings, can you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see three dozen prototypes. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't like any of those. <laughs> and, and, and Ducasse, though he was a spectacular chef, got um, you know, knocked down within a couple of weeks by the Daily News, the New York Times, the Post, uh, New York Magazine. I, mean, I think he got a total of like one and a half stars from all the publications in town put together. <laughs> so the idea of being able to not only go to this wonderful restaurant this many times, but go where there were absolutely no expectations was just amazing. It was, it was great, it was fun. How many stars did you end up giving him? We didn't give stars. Oh, that's right. I, I've never had to give stars any place, and I, maybe I never will. <laughs> um, though I thought I'd managed to get in undetected with the you know, anonymity and the fake credit cards and all that until the last time I was there, maybe the eighth or ninth time. And <laughs> there was a uh, salad. There was this beautiful little green salad, and then on the salad there was this tiny little green inchworm, and um, it was beautiful. It was the beautiful, beautiful inchworm. It was, it was like, <laughs> you seen the very hungry caterpillar? It looked a little like that. And, and, and so I picked it up with my finger, it was going back and forth between one finger and the rest, and letting it crawl up my arm, and I looked over and I realized that the maitre d' was seeing me play with this worm, and you've never seen a man turn more shades of color. <laughs> <laughs> Three sec, and 
that... Little does he know that worms are your favorite food. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I actually told me it was okay. I'm from California. We understand these things. <laughs> it means the lettuce was organic. <laughs> but, but that night, somebody in the kitchen, I guess, had uh, called the New York Post. And they had it set as, uh, I, I, I think, I was told as like the cover story, the A1 story for the next morning that, you know, the gourmet critic, critic discovers worm in the most expensive restaurant in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was advised by the, the people at the company not to say anything, that there was, if, there were, if there was any news, they wanted to be the ones to do it. But... Um, that's a great story. <laughs> I'm curious to know, since this, this new energy had come into town and you had this staff that was so willing and ready to um, just be given free reign to explore what they really wanted to explore, how did stories get assigned and how did ideas happen? Did you have a board where you started figuring out different issues and starting to put down what you what you wanted? No, I mean, it was, it was very, we, had, we really had to change the culture of the magazine because when we went in, the magazine had been edited from the top down and the editor had decided what the stories were gonna be and then sort of doled them out to the editors. And um, we really felt that if you want the staff to take ownership, you have to say, you find the stories. And, I mean, oddly, the magazine had never had, they didn't have meetings. So, you know, we started this, um, this tradition of having weekly meetings where we would discuss what the next issue should be and people would present ideas. And it took a while because people aren't used to having meetings and, you know, they're not used to um, going after their own writers. But after, after we really persuaded people that, yes, if, you know, they... They found writers um, and had stories, ideas, and we presented them, and we would bat them around, and it really became a very collaborative process. And I mean, the other thing that um, I think really changed about the magazine was when we got there, the magazine was pretty much decided two years ahead of time, and it was set in stone. And we had, when we got there, all of the articles for the next year or so were already in-house. And um, you know, my idea is that a magazine is a living, breathing entity, and um, it changes with the news. And you know, what is a good idea this month may not be a good idea next month, um, that you have to be very light on your feet. And so we got into this process of just constantly changing. You know, and the, we would have an idea of what this issue would be, and then it would come together, and you never know what, you know, if you can assign a story, but you don't really know what it's going to be till it comes in, and the stories would not be what you expected. They'd be good, um, but different than you expected, and they wouldn't go together in the same way, and so it was this sort of constant shifting, and... Was there a lot of competition for the same kinds of stories amongst the editors? No, I mean, it, it's... That got settled in the meetings. I mean, that's why everyone having a say helped, you know, they knew what everyone was working on, so you wouldn't suggest the same thing. 
Yeah, and somebody, you know, we would decide on a story, um, you know, uh, whiskey, you know, with the whiskey aisles or something, and, we, and somebody would say, you know, why this would be a good idea to do in some issue. And then people would start saying, well, you know, what if, you know, my writer so-and-so did it, and then we would all discuss whether that was a good idea or not a good idea, and someone else would say, no, you know, I have a better idea. And so we would, we would sort of work that out in these meetings where we would decide together who the ideal person to do that story would be. And often you found the ideal person would be the kind of writer that many people didn't think of as being a writer for a food magazine. Well, I mean, that was very, we all felt very strongly that what we wanted were great writers in the magazine. And I, for me, the, the moment that I knew that we were producing the magazine that we wanted to do was about two years in, I was having lunch with an agent, a literary agent, a you know, really top literary agent. She said, I can't believe it. All of my writers are asking me to get them into gourmet. And I thought, yes. <laughs> uh, we were trying to bring things back to what, you know, the kind of writers that were in gourmet in the past. You know? So this wasn't a brand new thing for the magazine. It was just kind of bringing it back. I mean, when, when you go through old gourmet and, and you really, you see who you know you know Ray Bradbury wrote dandelion wine for gourmet um, the beginning of it and you know the poet laureate of Maine Robert Tristram Coffin who is a wonderful writer wrote dozens and dozens of stories for gourmet in the early years and you know MFK Fisher wrote for gourmet and um, there was an, we, we found an F Scott Fitzgerald piece and um, I mean, uh, amazing people wrote for the magazine in the early years, and I think what happens with magazines is um, if they find a comfort place, they just get this regular stable of writers, and it's easy to do that, and that's a really bad idea. You don't want to do that. But, you know, for the editors, it's just easy if you don't have to go out and, you know... <laughs> um, and my assistant, who had been at the magazine, well, when, when the magazine closed, I think she'd been there 30 years, but she just sort of had a standard letter for any, no matter who wrote to the magazine querying articles, it was, you know, thank you very much, but no thank you. And um, we were trying very much to have it be, well, what do you have, you know, anybody could be interesting. Yeah, it was a deliberate um, um, idea that we had to introduce creative chaos into the system. You know, balanced enough so you could, people didn't go crazy, but you know, you needed that to so you can respond to new ideas. Coming from a a, a newspaper background where um, you have the opportunity every day to to respond to to news, things that that are happening right then. Um, was it ever frustrating for you to, to maybe work on a really long profile and then get scooped um, by another by another periodical? Really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> really frustrating. Um, and, and it happened too many times to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really think you've got, you know... I mean, we, we knew we had the first Adria story in the country, um, it was like something we assigned in our first week there. We knew that he was this, you know, 
this really interesting chef in Europe that everybody in Europe was talking about. Nobody had written about him in this country, and we assigned it. But of course, we had a long time for before the first issue, right. and um, two weeks before that issue of Gourmet appeared, there was a story about him in the New York Times, and it just killed me. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the, the response of the reader, um, did, you, did you get a lot of mail right from the beginning when you started to tinker, when Kitchen Notebook happened and you started to do um, a series of, of recipes that could be put together faster? Did people get irate? Really irate. Really irate. I mean, mm -hmm. the, first, uh, the, the response to the first few issues was thousands, literally, of letters from people saying, you know, you have ruined the best magazine in America. And um, I hired some, I wrote four, four stock letters and hired some people to handwrite notes um, to people in response to that, saying, you know, uh, this, is, this is new, give us a chance, please, you know, write back. And we started a dialogue with the readers, and um, I, my favorite letter I think I got the whole time I was there was about three years in, I got a letter from a woman who said, um, you know, I wrote you after that first issue and said, you know, what, what a terrible thing you had done and how much I hated the magazine, and I was wrong. And wow. I was just, you know, now, now not everybody felt that way, but... Um, <laughs> There was there was that thing that was, you know, a, a major a major uh, newspaper actually wrote, you know, this really nasty piece after what they thought was our first issue, even though we hadn't touched a single thing in it. That was funny, because <laughs> <laughs> we hadn't made any of those changes at all. What about a restaurant issue? Before you came, had there ever been an issue that just concentrated on restaurants? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they started the restaurant issue in the mid-90s. Um, and it was actually, um, you know, there, 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 are, there are creations of the publisher um, which are basically designed to get advertising. And both the restaurant issue and the hotel issue were those creatures. You know, it was something that the publisher invented because he saw an opportunity to get a lot of ads. Um, I'm not sure I would segregate um, the, the rest. I'm, 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 not sure, I don't, I'm not sure that that's, I mean, I'm sure actually it isn't. Um, you know, it, it's... Um, but from a reader's perspective, it's a really great thing. Not from, not from all readers. Um, really? That, no. Um, you know, you're a restaurateur, and you're and you're and you're and you're, and you're restaurant focused. But for the you know hundreds of thousands of people who want gourmet primarily for rest for recipes or for literary content, those restaurant issues are a big drag. You know, it's like chef recipes that they don't want, and. Um, different kind of literary content and if, if it had been up to me I would not have done I would have done the city issues because I thought those were really great um, and they sort of managed to give people everything they wanted but I always felt like the restaurant issue and the, and the hotel issue were 
um, not a good idea for a general readership. Was there anything that you feel that you left undone that you wish you could have done, given the time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. So much. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, this is such an exciting time in food, and to have a magazine pulled out from under us um, at this, just at this moment when Americans are, you know, really starting to un understand all these issues about ethical eating and environmentalism, I mean, and the politics of food, and not to be able to be there for that is just devastating. And you were doing a lot with the website in that direction, too, and it would have grown and... Yeah, I mean, and losing the website, I mean, in Barry's column. You know, I mean, that last issue, that, that last article we did about the tomato the slaves, the, the response to that, I mean, the idea that you could actually have that kind of an impact, that, you know, they had been trying to meet with Governor Christ for five years, and after that article, he met with them, and the, um, suddenly, you know, the... Um, everything was changing for those growers and uh, for those workers, and um, it was so exciting from a, you know, an article in an Epicurean magazine to be able to have that kind of an impact was so empowering, and then to suddenly not have the magazine is it's, it's very hard. And you know, Barry was doing such great stuff in Politics of the Plate, and he still has politicsoftheplate.com, which is. Um, his, his own website, but of course he doesn't have the resources of the magazine behind him, which makes a difference. Do you ever see any sort of reunion opportunities with writers that you've worked with and staff? Um, I hope so, but you know, who knows? <laughs> you you, you um, responded to a tweet that I thought was really interesting. It was a conversation going on about the possible Apple tablet that was going to come along. Uh, which is, you know, they're, they're going to unleash very soon now. Um, you know, I think, you know, magazines are not dead. And, um, you know, I mean, I do think that these, a tablet of some kind is going to be, is going to offer so many possibilities for, I mean, we're not going to have print magazines in the way that we have them, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have magazines. and and. Um, you know, we'd really been imagining, I mean, we'd been thinking hard for the past few years about what a magazine in this new age would mean, you know, that would, it would not be something that was online, but you would have the resources to be able to produce moving images and, um, you know, the idea of like putting your cursor over something and being able to get, for instance, every pumpkin pie that you've ever, um, <laughs> that you've ever published and um, being able to just instantly find out where to source ingredients. And I mean, the possibilities are so exciting for um, morphing this into something that is still this, but that you're consuming in a different way. And, you know, I, I think it's just an extraordinary time for media generally. And, you know, the idea that it, isn't that we're not going to print two million copies of every issue just to throw most of them away the next month doesn't mean that magazines are dead. I think I'd like to sort of wrap up this part of the conversation with asking you, what's the last thing you cooked? 
Um, what is the last thing that I cooked? And, um, then, and then I'll be asking you to the same. I don't know if it's the same dish or separate. Well, the last thing I cooked was actually a um, coconut cake. Ooh, I love coconut cake. Um, well, was it a gourmet recipe? It was a gourmet recipe. It was actually from our Edna Lewis issue, which was um, one of my favorite issues ever. But, you know, it's this giant fresh coconut cake, and it's, 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 it's a fair amount of work. Um, Did you make your own coconut extract? It doesn't, t- you know, it's, f- it's fresh coconut, and you, you make a syrup with the, the liquid inside the coconut, mm. and you brush it over the cake, and then you grate the fresh coconut, and it takes about a dozen eggs, because you need all these egg whites. Everybody, I, I, it would be interesting to know how many people will be making this cake. Over the- <laughs> <laughs> it's in gourmet today, but it, 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 is, it is a great cake, and it's very high. <laughs> Jonathan? I suppose it's what I made for my kids before I came here tonight. I rubbed, uh, I rubbed a chicken with salt and fennel pollen and stuck a couple of lemon cavity and roasted it. But mm-hmm. he just spent, you know, he, he did three pork roasts for a party recently <laughs> and then also on the same day made this amazing beef stew. And Is Jonathan yeah, the cook, cook of the house? Jonathan's the cook in the house. I'm spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> She makes no. toast in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you say I'm spoiled, you are forgetting <laughs> that great rant we ran. But I can't remember who it was by, but we ran a, when, when one of the things we did was have this, we changed the last touch to the last word and ran these wonderful rants. And we ran one by a woman who said she was really tired of having people tell her how lucky she was that her, her <laughs> husband cooked. She mm-hmm. said, you know, nobody ever tells a woman. Uh, nobody ever tells a man, you know, how lucky he is that his wife cooks. Oh, there's a Harry Belafonte song about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've now um, come to the part of the evening where you get to ask questions. Okay. My name is Lynn Corum. I'd like to know what happened to the test kitchens at Gourmet when it closed. They're still there, um, lonely, unused, but still there. Their fate is, at this moment, I think, um, unknown. Hi, Orrin Charm. Um, with the loss of Gourmet magazine after all these years, I'm curious if you can discuss the... Uh, which used to be the competition and where they fit in and what your favorites are. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I was just looking through a stack of uh, Ed Bear's Art of Eating magazine the other day, and those are beautiful. They're really nice travel articles. There's not that many recipes, but the ones they have are well-researched and done. He has a whole pool of it's not the same as it was when he wrote everything himself, and he has a pool of uh, most, mostly young but sort of middle-level freelancers who are doing just gorgeous stuff. And it, it, it's, it's just a quarterly, and it's not super recipe-intensive, but I don't think you'd be sad if you picked that up. That's The Art of Eating by Ed Bear. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Giselle Perez. And I just wondered how much warning you all got before... Gourmet was axed. None. 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 You should ask her. Ask her about the December issues. That, 
shocked that there was no December issue. When we heard it, we thought, at least we'll have the December issue. And the cookie uh, shop. You gotta and, oh, yeah, and, the cookie and, shop. The, and the December issue was done, and it was wonderful. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. And they, they, you know, it was literally, um, they called us in on Monday morning and said, it's over. And um, there was no warning. And, uh, you know, we really thought we would at least, we were two weeks away from printing the December issue. Um, I saw the covers. They were amazing. They yeah, were it, it, there were five covers on every December issue um, and there was a little booklet by Jane and Michael Stern inside a little pull-out booklet there was the, this wonderful I mean the, the spread the it would have been the most copy I, I thought our creative director was so wonderful and he had done we had three major meals a big a big Christmas meal a big Hanukkah feast of all savory and um, sweet donuts. It was, all, it was just a whole donut menu. And then there was a cocktail party that was all done in plaids. And it was, it was so wonderful looking. And then we had amazing, actually, um, a, a few pieces that have been picked up by other Condé Nast magazines that um, will run other places. Um, uh, a wonderful piece about Peru by Oliver Strand and um, this great piece by Caroline Bates on fruitcakes, which actually turned out to be sort of a history of um, dried fruit in America. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to ask a question. Will, will the recipes have any life anywhere, the recipes from the magazine? Um, well, they'll continue to live um, on Epicurious, uh, where they are now, and um, gourmet.com is not being updated, but it's still there with its, you know, we spent a lot of energy putting up that archive of old articles and old recipes, and that isn't going to go away anytime soon. Hi, my name is Carolyn, and this is for Ms. Reichel. I was wondering, a while back you did that article on your kitchen that you had remodeled? I'm sorry, what month? It um, would you did an article on your kitchen that you had remodeled way back. Right. I was just wondering, I was curious if you were still happy with your design of your kitchen. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it actually, and... it, wasn't, it wasn't remodeled. We built that from scratch. Oh, okay. And I love that kitchen. <laughs> I, 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 I love it more than any kitchen I've ever cooked in. Um, I, I'm happy about every decision except one, which is that I put the garbage in the wrong place. <laughs> I, I, Why is it the wrong place? It's, um, it's not central. I, I, it, garbage is central in a kitchen, and I should have put it right next to the sink, and I didn't. And it, but it, other than that, I, you know, it, I could have made a giant kitchen, but I made a little one, and it, it's, it really works. I love cooking in there. Hey, my name is Sarah Lieb, and um, I'm a very active... I'm a very active food yelper, um, and I really love to read food blogs. Um, you've mentioned a couple thus far, but I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, uh, all four of you, if you would, mentioning some of your favorite blogs slowly enough that I can write them down. <laughs> I like reading Ruth's tweets. <laughs> I, like, I like Shape Him. Um, I like Serious Eats. At one point, I was reading dozens of them, and then I sort of slowed down. 
I read so many, and yet it's hard to come, come up with. I mean, Shape Him is good. Her, her recipes are, are, you know, thorough. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm upset because I do the restaurant thing. I'm sort of obsessed with the various, you know, eaters and squid inks. And, yes, uh, yes. Squ I love squid ink. And those things of the world. And I'm just. Jonathan came up with that title. Probably. It's the best title. <laughs> Squid Ink, of course, is the LA Weekly blog for anybody who's never been on it. We have a question uh, here. Sarah oh, Leaf's website is good, it has lots of jazz singing on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have a question to your left over here. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Billy Vasquez, and I have a couple of questions for Jonathan. Uh, one is. Uh, do you have any quibbles with your uh, New Yorker profile? And the other one is, in all your restaurant reviewing travels, what is your uh, parking ticket uh, <laughs> uh, accumulation over the year and also uh, moving violations uh, in a year? <laughs> uh, I'm really good at moving violations, and uh, uh, though my most recent one was making an illegal right turn uh, after a meal at a restaurant that I won't name that actually had um, ground glass in the salmon riette. Not so good. But uh, yeah, lot, lot, lots of parking tickets. West Hollywood is especially brutal. <laughs> and the New Yorker profile? Oh. Th he thought he was going to get away with that answer. <laughs> <in that one. laughs> uh, the. You know, Dana, the woman who wrote it, is, wrote it as a, a, a wonderful writer. I'm not quite like a, a chumming shark as much as perhaps I might come off in that, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm happy. It was, it was a really good piece, and I was at the center of it. <laughs> Hi, my name is Linda Rasmussen. Um, I have a very personal question. I have a 1944 September copy of Gourmet Magazine that my grandmother had. Yeah. So I've, this has been a part of my life, and I was wondering if I could ask you to sign it for me. Wow. <laughs> wow. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> What's the cover? <laughs> oh, I remember that one. Yeah. That, you know, these were all done. All, they, these were all done by one guy named um, Henry Stahl for years and oh, years that's and a years. Beauty. Henry Stahl. Um, where did God? I feel like I'm violating this beautiful thing. <laughs> I mean, that was like one of the the really major changes is when they they stopped having these drawn covers and and Stahl had stopped stopped doing them. Is a huge change, and what you can't see in the background is this little scarecrow. For for some reason, I was just thinking about uh, in the in the regime of gourmet. Where do you want me to sign it? <laughs> Inside cover. Inside cover. Yeah. Inside. There it's a collector go. there. Inside cover. Inside cover. Right. That's. <laughs> Right under Miss Rheingold, I think it's perfect. Right. <laughs> 1946. You want us all to sign? Yes, please. You know, we did, um, we started doing two covers, uh, one for the subscribers and one for the newsstands, because we knew that subscribers really wanted to see food um, 
on the cover, and that, that was one way of keeping um, the regular subscribers happy while trying to get new readers. Hi, uh, my name is Kim, and um, that's kind of an interesting lead in. My particular passion is I love food photography, and um, which really broke my heart to see uh, gourmet go away because that's, I could just look at the pictures all day. Um, now that, uh, I wanted to, um, any of you that uh, have some favorites to tell maybe who your food, uh, photog favorite food photographers are. And um, also, uh, now that Gourmet is gone, where, where the really outstanding food photography, where you think it's going to be and where we can find it? That's a great question. I mean, I have to say, you know, our longtime photographer at Gourmet was Romulo Yanis. Um, he had been there for 28 years, I think. And he immediately got work of I me. And of all of us, he, w he was employed three days later. Um, and he's, been, he's busier than he's ever been in his life. But one of the things that when, when Richard, our, our last uh, creative director, came in, one of his ideas was to not use food photographers, to get um, people who had a different eye. And so for the last four or five years, we were using photographers who were coming at it with, in, with a very different look. And um, a lot of them then became food photographers because people would look at their work in Gourmet and then hire them to do food photography. But most of them had never thought about doing that before. So many of these people are so wonderful. There, there are quite a few, of course, I can't think of them right off the top of my head, but there are some amazing um, food photography sites on the web. A lot of really amazing photography lives there, um, available in very high resolution as well. Um, of course, I can't. And, I'll, I'll tweet it. And, and one of the things that you can't see, but one of the people who is a food photographer who we used for years is John Koenig, who, who is very talented, and you can see his work in lots of other Epicurean magazines. And what you can see when you look at them is how important the art direction is. And Koenig's work in Gourmet doesn't look at all like his work in Bon Appetit or Food and Wine. And I asked him once uh, what, why that was, and he said, because Richard is the only one of these art directors who trusts me, and if I get a shot that I really like and I give it to him and I say, you know, use this one, he will use it, and he uses it in the way that I want him to. And he also will come on set and, you know, we'll work it out together. And he said, you know, you look at these other magazines, and he showed me once how they had cropped his art in ways that he didn't like, um, blown it up, that um, his intentions had been completely subverted. So it's not just the photography. I mean, it's, it, that, too, is a collaboration. And there's Anne Fishbein, who shoots uh, Jonathan's column, who's... Uh a wonderful photographer. She gets the people at the restaurants and then the food itself. Is, she, she's kind know. of the Diane Arbus of food. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, she gets, she gets, I mean, she, she'll take a picture of a turnip, maybe an ugly picture, but it perfectly expresses its turnip. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
And I, I still love Christopher Hersheimer's stuff wherever she's shooting. She has that new, ma that new like, cookbook slash magazine now that she's doing in Pennsylvania. It's just gorgeous. Canal House. Canal House. She's the one who introduced the idea of um, very natural light and kind of influenced a lot of photographers who came after. Yeah. It's when, when you go when I used to go out with her on shoots when I wrote before I wrote for Gourmet. It's you know I'd be I'd be eating lunch and it's it, and you usually usually there's a big elaborate setup with a million lights and screens and that things and I said well we're gonna have to take a picture of the food now said, oh we took it. It's done. Christopher <laughs> was the old Sever. Yeah. When Coleman Andrews was the editor of Sever, she did a She was their look, and mm -hmm. and she's remarkable in that she just she's so fast. I mean, she she can do fifty photographs in the time that most people do one. Yeah. Pretty much the person who uh, introduced the or introduced or reintroduced the concept of food that had been potchkied with, you know, the fish with a bite taken out of it, or the, uh, the lemon peel in a corner, you know, next to this beautiful plate of pasta sort of thing. Hi, my name's Angela. Um, first, I want to thank you for all of your work. I never thought I would actually be able to personally thank you for all of the issues of Gourmet. <laughs> And, and thanks to Zocalo, because I was in a deep sense of mourning when I heard about the, the demise of the magazine. So thanks to Zocalo for providing this opportunity to, to let us talk to you. Um, as a budding um, food and travel writer, what um, advice would you have? Ooh. <laughs> I would say don't try to write like you think writing's supposed to sound. Kind of try to find your own voice. And that's kind of listening to kind of the... Like those jokes you tell in your head sometimes, or you know things you notice. People, um, you know, new writers sort of trying to make the mistake of trying to sound like writing and using words that they wouldn't normally use in conversation. So just kind of read your work out loud and say, does this sound like I would be? T I would really tell someone this. Um, you know, just be like you're writing to a friend. That, that, that's that's really good advice because I mean often when you, you're, you're there's two trains of thought one you're observing what you're doing and the other is sort of like this little voice in the back of your head that's cracking jokes at what yeah, your actual observations expense and it's the little voice in your back of your head that you want to transcribe because it's usually the better one. Hi, I'm Rachel. Um, I was wondering what you think the legacy of Gourmet is. I, I think it was for um, a big part of American food history. It, it was the voice of American food for a very long time. And I think that, you know, looking back, people will find this repository of what we were eating um, for, you know, this big swath of um, our our history and um, and the very time that American food was coming of age. And I mean, I don't think I ever saw that more clearly than when we did History in a Glass, the book about wine writing, and you suddenly saw that, you know, um, Gourmet started at the point, it was just after Prohibition had ended and the war was coming in and you really 
um, just going through the history of the wine writing in the magazine, I saw, you know, you, you see the growth of the American wine industry, and then you see, um, as you know, at first it's just German and French, and then suddenly the Italians come in, and then the whole American uh, wine movement is exploding, and then you're watching Italian and Australian, and it's really fascinating. And I think that if we get a little more distance, we'll see that with food as well. I think we're a little, still a little too close to it. I also think it's one of the magazines that didn't um, condescend to its readers, both in the recipes and the writing. I mean, it, it, there was no lowest common denominator. I assumed that its readers were grown-ups. Yeah, that's really well put. Uh, my name is Lynn Fireside, and uh, speaking of history, I had read that as soon as you heard the magazine was folding, that you put a lock on the library because it con constitutes such an important historical record. And I wondered, what's the status of that right now? Um, the, the library, and, and, and the value of the library, I should say, is it's not that those books are particularly rare, although there are some rare books. What's, what's important about the library is that every book that was pub has been published, every cookbook that's been published in America since 1941 came through that library, and there was a constant culling down of what was considered the best, the most important. So there's 3,500 books, but there are 3,500 books that people who really cared and knew decided were the ones that deserved to be kept. And that collection has gone intact to the Fales Library at NYU. Is there a bibliography yet? Um, no, I think they're making one. But Roseanne Gold gave, I mean, the new house has decided for reasons I don't understand, not to donate it, but to sell it. And Roseanne Gold gave them, gave the library the $14,000 that the new houses wanted. Wow. So if you feel like buying a copy of Cooking One, Two, Three, <laughs> three. You, you can salve your conscience. <laughs> Roseanne Gold's book. Yeah, people are always, people are always saying, "Oh, it's your wife." <laughs> Hi, Roseanne. <laughs> uh, Laurie Mulligan, and I'm curious how much you were influenced by the letters to the editor, and what your criteria was for ones you would print. I am probably more influenced than I should be by. Um, what people think, but I felt like it was a really, I mean, I, I always felt that the magazine wasn't ours, it belonged to the readers, so um, what the readers were thinking was really important to me, and if it had been up to me, we would have printed a lot more reader letters, but space is always an issue. The one thing that, there was one big change that Lori and I made when we went in, which was that until we got there, Gourmet only printed letters that said how great it was. And um, I just thought that was so boring. I mean, I, so I always felt like we had to have a real balance of the meanest letters we got along with people defending. You know, I, I, I wanted a back and forth. That came from her days at the LA Times. I remember she would encourage them to run the meanest letters about her. <laughs> you, know, you liked you know, having that kind of 
well, feistiness. I, I, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it, it's important for, for people to get a sense of the texture of what, you, you know, what the response is. Hi, Andrew Downs. What needs to change to make something the caliber of gourmet possible again? We need, we need to get through this recession and all of the, all of the advertisers who um, would, would like to be advertising in a gourmet but are in trouble themselves um, need to get back on their feet. Um, you know, it's, I mean, some of our biggest support, I mean, you know, the, the people who manufacture big appliances who, um, you know, need housing starts to go up again because that's where their big business is and, you know, they don't have the money to advertise now and, you know, the travel advertisers and the automotive advertisers, I mean, if, if they all come back, there will be um, a possibility <laughs> for a gourmet again, or you need um, a publisher who believes in it enough to carry it through bad times. My name is Joan Reese, and I just had to reframe my question a little bit because of what you just said. Would you be willing, if economic circumstances changed, to be part of a new gourmet, or at this point, do you feel that it's a closed chapter in the book of your life, and you want to do something else? Um, you know, I never say I never say never to anything, and this magazine was really important to me, and I think it's important to the conversation that America is having about food and. You know, I, I, we have, you know, almost 60 people who loved working together, who would love to work together again, many of whom cannot find jobs. So, um, you know, if there were a way to do the magazine again, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think it's such an amazing time in American food right now. And it makes me really sad that we're not part of it. Hi. Well, now that I know you better, uh, <laughs> being a management type, a management person, can I ask you, can you focus for us in maybe two or three sentences just exactly what the differences were between you and them? Uh, me and Zan? Them. And them? Yeah, you and they. Other magazines? Oh, uh, other... Other, ma I mean, other magazines, or do you mean... Gourmet and no, I'm, I'm thinking uh, why you parted company. Obviously, there was a fundamental uh, issue. Did somebody say, Ruth, you're spending too much money? Oh. Did somebody say, Ruth, did you, uh, you're humorless? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, about me personally, I wish it had been because um, if it had been about me personally, they could have just fired me and the magazine would go on. Um, no, I mean, it was, um, advertising was in free fall. The money people decided that it wasn't coming back soon enough and decided to pull the plug on the magazine. Because circulation was high. Circulation was at an all-time high. Reader, readers liked it and the advertisers liked it, but the advertisers didn't have any money themselves at the moment. I mean, it, it's... I, I really do wish it had been me personally, and I, and I did think that 
that would have been maybe something they would have done is just said, this isn't working, goodbye, and that would have been a much better scenario. Yes, we could all be reading Paula Deen's Gourmet. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I, I will say that another answer to that is one of our young editors left to go work for the Food Network magazine. And he called um, one of his friends at the magazine about two weeks before the magazine closed and said, "Um, here's why we're the future and you're toast. There are six of us and there are 60 of you. And that is part of it. You know, you don't get quality with, without, a lot of people doing it. And, um, you know, I think the future is these magazines put out by six people instead of, you know, we had more than that in the, we had twice that many people in the test kitchens. My name is Marcia Fowler. I have a twofold question. The first part is what is the possibility of uh, privately publishing the December issue? <laughs> <laughs> and the second is uh, other magazines to which I subscribe, have uh, published all previous editions on a DVD that's now available. Is there a possibility that that might happen? Um, To the first question, no, because all that material belongs to Condé Nast. To the second question, I do think that there is, they are exploring the possibility of doing something like what the New Yorker did with, in fact, the man who's in charge of whatever continues with Gourmet is the man who put um, The New Yorker on a disc, and I think they are considering that possibility. Hi, my name's Arthur Greenwald. Um, I was involved uh, with the San Fernando Valley chapter of Slow Food for a while, and we folded it into the larger uh, Los Angeles chapter just because we couldn't expand it because what we found was the people who were interested in slow food were already active with slow food, and while there obviously is growing interest in all the related topics, um, it, it was very difficult to expand with limited resources. And uh, playing off of what you just said before, your insight about trying to maintain that elusive balance between quality and popularity, what can you do to reach out to that much, much larger audience of people who are interested in food but may not share all the values of upscale food or um, uh, the political aspects of food. Are there ways that you can see reaching across to to, uh, the popular audience without, in your view, cheapening what you do? Well, that's very much what we were trying to do with the website. I mean, I I saw the website as really a way of um, being much more inclusive and trying to find an audience and say to, to and saying to them you know you you're really going to be interested in this magazine and you know you have so much you don't have the space problems online that you do in a print magazine and so you know we were really trying to cover a lot more territory um but to do it well and i was really proud of what we did on the website um you know we had a, a lot of a lot of you know, funny things, um, you know, we, we did, you know, awful Mondays and, um, you know, kind of squidding kinds of things and um, had a lot of young writers. 
I think that's, I, I think that the web is really um, a great way to reach out. Hi, my name is Priscilla Lopez. Um, I know Ruth has been saying um, throughout the night that it, food's going through so much now in such an exciting time for food. If you guys to write one last issue, if you got the opportunity to write, let's say, a February-March issue, what would be the key notes, I mean, the key um, columns that you guys have there, some sort of... Like, give us, like, a recap of what would the new March issue would be or February issue if you guys to put together. Final issue, you guys knowing that it was... Oh, okay. God, if, if we could do a final issue, I would go to every great writer I could think of and every great um, photographer and artist and cook. And I, I would probably just say, you know, I want your... You can do anything. No holds barred. Write me, write me a, an article about something that really matters to you. I mean, I would try to get as many voices as I could And I would probably, you know, ask people to voice their major concern. What, it, what is the thing that worries you most about the future of food in America or what excites you most about the future of food in America? And try and get, I don't know if you saw the, the literary supplement we did about, we had this extraordinary thing happen about four years ago where um, Phillips did an entire little issue, a hundred pages with only five pages of ads, and we were able to really get great literary quality in that. And I think that's what I would do, is I would just try and get as many diverse, passionate voices um, talking about the future. Well, it's, I mean, if you were going to write something personally, what would, your, what would you write about? I would write about how, I, how excited I am right now about where I think young people are about food in this country and the, the future that I, I imagine happening because um, I, I think there has never been a time when there were so many young people who really understand what their food choices mean and and how much they matter. And um, I would probably write about what I think is, will happen 15 years down the road because of that. It would be a very utopian piece. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason Ruth's magazines were always great is because picking up on what she said is that you let people follow their obsessions and that's when you get the best pieces. So if you assign something to someone, you might not get a great magazine. And it was always the mix of things. It was what she did great. <laughs> and food is a subject that has and will always attract the obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.